Let's go to him in prayer now. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to see Jesus rightly today. That you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we might behold the light of the world. So make us receptive to what you are saying to us through your holy word this morning. We pray that in the name and glory of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, if you're a human being, which I'm assuming we all are in this room, we love stories of great reversal. You know, when the weak or oppressed are exalted, and those who are the oppressors are defeated. I was reminded of this this week as I was reading in our Bible reading plan that we're going through at church in the book of Esther, and the story of Haman and Mordecai. Do you remember that story? Haman had risen to the second highest leader in the land, and he hated Mordecai. He hated Mordecai because Mordecai would not bow down and pay homage to him. But through a series of events, Mordecai, God ordained us, Mordecai began to be exalted. And Haman was threatened. Haman wanted to kill not just Mordecai, but all the Jews. But as Mordecai was lifted high, Haman realized his fate was sealed. And the very gallows that Haman had made for Mordecai, he was eventually hanged upon himself. It was a great reversal. Mordecai was exalted, the second in the land, and Haman was defeated. We love these stories of great reversal because they echo the greatest story there is. And here in John chapter 9, Jesus is going to use the sign of bringing sight to a blind man to give us a real-life illustration of the great reversal that he has come to bring. And he invites us into that story. He invites us to the winning side. And, and that, by way of reminder, is what Jesus' signs are intended to do. They're intended to point us to deeper spiritual realities that we might believe in Jesus as Lord. Well, just a reminder of the context of what's going on in the book of John. The religious authorities hate Jesus. They want to kill him. They've been wanting to kill him ever since well, really the beginning of the story, but chapter 2, chapter 5, and even at the end of last chapter, chapter 8, they picked up stones to stone Jesus. They wanted him dead. Why? Because Jesus said he was the great I am. He was Yahweh. He was God in the flesh. And these religious leaders were having none of it. And so today, as we walk through the story, I want us to do just that. We're going to walk through this story. But there's three uh, signposts that I want to point out that will help direct us. They're markers that will teach us the impact that Jesus has on everyone he encounters. These are the signposts, signposts I want us to uh, be aware of. First, Jesus came to give sight to the blind. We see that in verses 1 to 7. Second, your response to Jesus' works reveals what you can see. Your response to Jesus' works reveals what you can see. That's the verses 8 to 34. And then third, Jesus pursues the humble and condemns the proud. He pursues the humble and condemns the proud. We see that in verses 35 to 41. So let's first 
look at how Jesus came to give sight to the blind, starting in verse 1. As the story begins, Jesus is still in Jerusalem. Remember, the Feast of Booths has just finished. We don't know how long it's been. But as he's walking by, he spots a blind man begging on the side of the road. And his disciples, instead of seeking to help the man, they, they uh, disregard helping him, and they want to spark up a theological debate. Before we condemn them, we, we, we got to remember sometimes we're in the same boat when we see a homeless person on the side of the road. We, we get into a theological debate internally. Well, what's wrong? Is he, is he drunk? Does he need some alcohol? Does he need drugs? I'm not going to give him up. We have a theological debate. That's what his disciples are doing here. So they asked Jesus in verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, Jesus, who's to blame for this man's condition? Because someone is surely to blame. This question by the disciples reveals their own blindness and how the world works. They were, uh, they had bought into the prevailing worldview of their day, which, by the way, is the and it's this, when the philosophy says that if bad things happen to you, it must be because you've done something wrong. Maybe you've felt this sometimes when you've had a trial or hardship in your life. You're thinking, what did I do wrong, God? Who's to blame? Well, this philosophy is what goes around comes around. Secular people today call it karma, which is really a Buddhist concept. Jesus is having none of it. So he corrects their misunderstanding in verse 3. He says, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, Jesus is telling his disciples, You missed the boat completely. Not A or B, it's none of the above. He's not blind because of someone's sin, but because of God's glory, for God's glory, the reason for this man's blindness, so that God's works might be displayed in him. We need to pause just for a second, and we need to ponder what Jesus says here. Because here Jesus affirms that not all hardship or disability or trial can be traced to a person's individual sin. It's not always a one-to-one correlation. Sure, there are times that our sin leads to a trial. We see that even in 1 Corinthians 11, we're about to take the Lord's Supper. If we take the Lord's Supper in a way where we haven't discerned the body, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, some have become sick and even died because of that. There's direct correlation there. But that's not always the case. And we can't always generalize each and every trial we have in such a way. So what does that mean for us today? It means that if you are going through a trial today, or if you have a disability that you were given from birth, it could be a physical trial, there there could be an emotional trial you're going through, any kind of trial that you're going through, this passage and others, but this passage shows us that God intends to do his work through your trial. Through the trial that he has brought in your life. That doesn't mean you're going to get complete resolution to it this side of heaven. You're not going to be healed in every case. You're not going to have all your relationships mended. But it does mean that the Lord of heaven has brought this trial in your life 
to refine and test you, to help you persevere in the faith if you know and love Jesus Christ. He's making you more like Christ. Romans 8.28 tells us that it's often used in a harmful way, but in this case it's a helpful way. We say that for those who love God, He works all things together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. So whatever trial you're going through right now, it doesn't mean that God thinks that trial is good. In fact, there may be some great injustice that has been done to you, or great evil, or it's the result of sin. Another person's or, or your own. It could mean all of those things. But you can be assured that he is going to work that trial together for your good. It also means that if you're walking alongside someone right now who's going through a difficult trial, this passage should be a warning to you not to jump to conclusions about that person's hardship. Don't just assume they've done something wrong not necessarily the case. Many trials are simply the result of living in a fallen world from the original sin. We live in a cursed, fallen world. But it's also one that is governed by a sovereign God. It's kind of a parenthesis, kind of a side application, but it's an important one for us today. Well, Jesus continues in verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, he says. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So here Jesus repeats what he's been saying throughout the whole book of John, that he has been sent by God the Father to do his works. He's been saying that throughout the entire gospel. And these words are intended, John says, to lead to belief in Jesus. He says once again that he's the light of the world. We heard that last chapter, chapter 8, and now he foreshadows his death. That's what he means when he says night is coming when no one can work. When is night coming, no one can work? It's when Jesus went to the cross and died. When he was taken away from this world, before he poured out his spirit to uh, his believers, that's when night had come for that short season. Well, now Jesus is going to show us what being the light of the world really means through this miracle. So listen to verse 6. Having said these things, he's given the theological basis of what he's going to do. He spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing don't you just love the compassion of our Lord? He's not like the disciples. He's not just trying to solve a theological conundrum with this man. He sees a man born blind from birth, and he shows intense compassion on him. We may not appreciate what it meant to be blind in the first century, but if you were blind in the first century, you had no options in life. That was kind of like... Uh, you struck out because you had to beg for your existence. There was no kind of help for those who had that kind of disability. By healing this man, Jesus has changed his life forever. Think about it. The one sent by God, Jesus, sent a blind man to a pool called Sent 
so that he could be healed and eventually be sent to be a witness that we would remember even to today until the Lord comes back. It's amazing what the Lord can do. So remember that Jesus is using this miracle to, as a kind of illustration, to show us the process that he brings every single person who believes in him through. From darkness to light. From spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. Jesus came to open eyes to the blind. Well, the next signpost we come to as we journey through the text is this. Your response to Jesus' words reveals what you can see. You know, you'd, you'd assume that if a man born blind was healed, everyone would be rejoicing. They would have a party in the streets. But that's not the case. Not everyone responds to Jesus' words in a favorable way. We see a microcosm of that in this next section of the story. We observe three different groups reacting to the man's healing in different ways. His neighbors, the Jewish leaders, and his parents. And all of their reactions are divided. The division amongst the neighbors and the townspeople comes in verses 8 to 12. Listen to it here. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit at night? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but it is like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. So they said to him, then how are your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus, made mud and anointed my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Well, you can just imagine the scene of this man who's just been healed. All these people who had seen him formerly are kind of surrounded. They're like, who, who are you? Who is this guy? And they're debating about who he is. And he's right in the middle of them to say, hey guys, it is me. This is me. It kind of shows that even though he has been healed of his blindness, he is not yet valued or accepted by those who only knew him as a blind beggar. He's still kind of like a lower caste of society in their minds. They don't listen to him. They don't know what to think, really. And so they bring the man to their spiritual leaders to help make sense of what has just happened. This is the verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened their eyes. You can almost hear the dun-dun-dun when John says now it's the Sabbath day. Because, you see, the Pharisees were so blinded by their religious rules, they were so blinded by legalism that they could not see the works of God right in front of their eyes. According to the traditions of the Pharisees, Jesus broke the Sabbath in healing this man because he put water, he put his saliva in the mud, and he he mixed up that little mixture. That was eating in their mind. And this was one of the 39 rules of work on the Sabbath that he could not do that they had come up with. So Jesus had clearly broken the Sabbath. You also weren't supposed to heal someone unless they're about to die. And so since this guy wasn't about to die, he had broken the Sabbath in two different ways. And so you see that right off the bat, they were skeptical of what had happened. That's in the verse 15. So the Pharisees again asked them how he had received his sight. 
And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. There's their legalism coming out. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division amongst, amongst them. So first there's this division, division of the townspeople, the neighbors. Now there's division amongst the Pharisees. And this just shows us that legalism is so hard to keep consistently. It just really doesn't make sense. And that's why the Pharisees are divided. They've got so many rules, and they've got uh, those rules that he's broken right here. But then they can see the work of God here. It's, it's undeniable that a great work has happened, and they don't know how to reconcile those two. They aren't willing to consider that maybe their rules are incorrect. That can happen with all forms of legalism. We put God in a box. We think he works in certain ways. We define how God works. And then when he does something outside of our box, we have to discount it in some way. Well, then the story continues in verse 17. And so they said again to him, to the blind, again to the blind man, what do you say about it, since he has opened your eyes? See, they don't know what to think about this man, so they must be really desperate. They ask the man himself, and what does he say? He is a prophet. The Pharisees are so blind in their legalism and pride that they cannot see what God has done. But this man, this formerly blind beggar, knows that Jesus has come from God. He's a prophet, he says. He's trained. He's not trained. This, this, uh, this beggar, uh, blind beggar, but the, the Pharisees, these trained, these uh, PhDs, these people who know about God, they can't see right in front of their eyes a word of God. They're blinded. So, well, they don't believe this man because it doesn't fit in their box. So they call in the man's parents. This is the verse 18. The Jews, this is another word for the Pharisees and religious leaders, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and he had received his sight until he called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then now does he see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak. For himself. Well, now it's been verified. They, they called in the parents. They said, Yes, this is our son. They say he is of age. At that time, he had to be 13 years old to stand in the court. So he's at least over 13 years old. They say, He's of age. Ask him. But this response of the parents is just tragic, is it not? They are in preservation mode. Likely, they do know that Jesus healed their son. They probably talked to their son, they talked to the townspeople. It's not like they don't know what happened. But they don't want their lives negatively affected by being associated with Jesus. John says as much in verse 22, this parenthesis. He says, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed, if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. 
You see, because parents don't want to be ostracized from their community. They don't want to lose friends. They don't want to have to change their rhythms of life. They don't want their life to be disrupted in the least because of an association with Jesus. And in this self-preservation, they basically push everything back upon their son. They aren't willing to stand with them. Well, the Pharisees hope that they can intimidate the man, just like they did with the parents. They, they thought, this is successful, let's go back to him. So they go back to the man and hope he'll change his story. Listen to verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now when they say give glory to God, it's not what we think. They're really saying, tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. The same phrase was used by Joshua when he confronted Achan. Remember when Achan had sinned uh, by stealing some of the devoted things? And Joshua told Achan back in uh, Joshua chapter 7, he said, give glory to God. Tell us what has really happened. They're asking for a confession. They know this man is a sinner. Tell us what really happened. But no amount of pressure or cross-examination or threats will deter this man. So he answers them boldly in verse 25. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. This is one of the greatest testimonies in all of Scripture. Though I was blind, now I see. And in this case, it literally is true. He was blind, and now he sees. But what incredibly bold words given the circumstances. Man is a former beggar. He has far less education than those around him. He has far less power. He has no status in society. And yet, he gives this bold testimony of what Jesus has done for him. Friends, this should encourage those of us who are shared, afraid to share our faith or to testify about what Jesus has done in our lives. This man doesn't yet even fully believe in Jesus. He hasn't even received him as his Savior yet, and he is testifying about what Jesus has done, even at great cost to himself. He can't answer any of their theological questions. He knows very little, but what he does know is that his life has been radically changed by Jesus. He won't be silent. Well, the religious leaders are taken aback at this kind of boldness. And so they ask him again how this miracle happened. Perhaps they're trying to catch a discrepancy between these two stories and they can kind of uh, take that angle. Look at uh, this the verse 26 here. Then they said to them, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I love the little snarkiness there. They reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. As for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, He just keeps growing in boldness. <laughs> Why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is the worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the beginning of the world has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man on wine. 
If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And Elijah didn't like his response. So, in verse 34, they answered that you were born in utter sin. You would teach us, and they cast him out. It's incredible how this man's boldness is increasing by each passing moment. He has seen Jesus clearly, and they cannot see Jesus at all. When he challenges the prevailing narrative about Jesus that the religious leaders had come up with, they spew them at him. Verse 28 says they profiled him. Verse 34, they said, you were born in utter sin. It proves that they believe that prevailing worldview. Yes, he was born in sin. He was blind from birth because he was a sinner. How dare he challenge them who were enlightened? But when they're challenged, their pride is on full display. And in their anger, they cast them out, meaning they kicked them out of the synagogue, meaning he no longer had access to his local community. Now that the formerly blind man can see, uh, because of his testimony of Jesus, he's lost his community. He's been ostracized. He's been excommunicated. He's still alone, just like he was before, but he has chosen the best path. Going to find that out soon enough. But before we get to the final scene of the story, I wanted to stop there for a moment and ask this question of us all. And it's this What character traits of the characters in the story do you most identify with? What character traits of the character characters in the story do you most identify with, especially when it comes to Jesus? Maybe you can identify with the neighbors. You're a bit skeptical about Jesus, or there's just questions, you're agnostic, you don't know the answer about him. You're not willing to hear a testimony about what Jesus has done in someone's life to change it. Or perhaps you have some traits of the Pharisees. You're full of self-righteous pride. Maybe you've put Jesus in a box. And you've made conclusions about him. And when the world doesn't work as you think the world should work, you blame him. It must be his fault. Or maybe you can identify with the parents. And that's the fear of man. You're afraid to publicly identify with Jesus. Especially if it's going to cost you something. Especially if others would ridicule this is the case, then self-preservation will be more of an importance to you than the glory of Jesus. Or can you identify yourself with the healed man? Boldly testify about Jesus' work in your life, regardless of the consequences. Now, this is an interesting question. I, everyone knows we should be in the last category. You know, we all want to be those who are boldly identifying with Christ, no matter what. But in the real world, as believers, we, uh, we know that sometimes we find ourselves in these other categories. Sometimes we find ourselves more like the parents, or maybe more like the Pharisees. We're mad at God. But no matter where you find yourself here, and these other categories may seem easier in the short term in certain situations. But Jesus, if you let him, will give you, and he gives us that boldness to overcome our fears and to stand strong. We have the Holy Spirit's power.
power within us first. No matter what the cost, He will give us that strength. We take steps of faith in His power. Well, now we've come to the last scene of the story. It's the final signpost that emerges here, and it's that Jesus pursues the humble, and He condemns proud. So Jesus pursues those that don't fit in. That's what he delights in. He, he pursues those that don't have a place, those that are lowly, those that are forgotten in this world. We see this in full display in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast them out, and having found them, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? The man likely knows who the Son of Man is. If he was a good Jewish male, he would know that the Son of Man is referring to Daniel chapter 7, this heavenly figure who is given an everlasting dominion and glory and kingdom from God that shall never pass away. But he doesn't know who this man is. He needs some help from Jesus. Jesus said to him in verse 37, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, and he worshipped him. What a radical transformation this man has undergone in just a very short period. First, he is given physical sight and his life is transformed. And now he, he changes his eternal destiny by giving, as Jesus does, by giving him spiritual sight as the man believes in him. And throughout the book of John, this pattern seems to hold true. The further the outcast, the more uh, despised, the more direct Jesus is about his identity. Have you noticed that? This happened with the case of the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, where he tells her right after that, like, I'm the Messiah. He's told her that. And then here with the healed man, he asks the identity of the Son of Man, Jesus says, it's me. That is me. And the man immediately worships Jesus, which, by the way, is always the appropriate response that comes to Jesus. When we're confronted by Jesus, when we're in the presence of Jesus, that is the appropriate response. The miraculous sign is done what, uh, and this healing is done what was intended to do. It led to belief in Jesus. The man's physical and spiritual eyes have been opened. He believes that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's the Lord of all. We see that Jesus pursues the humble. But we also see that he condemns the proud. So as for the Pharisees, Jesus' light has revealed their blindness. Listen to verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees here had heard these things and said to them, Are we also blind? It could be translated maybe more accurately. We are not also blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. Now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. And here we come to the main point of the story. This is kind of the lesson that Jesus is teaching through the entire narrative. The sign of the healing is that he came to open the eyes of the spiritually blind and to expose the blindness of those who think they 
see. We learned earlier in John chapter 3, verse 17, that when Jesus came to earth, he came not to condemn or to judge the world, but to save the world. So why does he say here, for judgment on coming to the world? Because with Jesus' coming, judgment was an inevitable result. Because when the light of the world was revealed, those who were drawn to the light ran to him, and those who loved darkness hid from him. The same thing happens today. Friends, you cannot stay neutral with Jesus. He came to give sight to the spiritually blind. And the truth is, is that every single one of us was born spiritually blind. Just like that man was born physically blind. Every single one of us. And you can only receive spiritual sight. You can only have eternal life. You can only have life in Christ by humbling and humbly admitting that you are blind and by believing in him. By admitting that you cannot see on your own. That you cannot give yourself sight. Maybe today God is showing someone here for the first time that they cannot see, spiritually speaking. If that's you this morning, I would invite you to trust in the Lord Jesus. Trust that he has died for you. He rose from the grave so that you might see. You might have life. You can trust in him today. Well, the blind man in the story knew he was physically blind. He also came to understand that he was spiritually blind. When he believed in Jesus, he received spiritual sight. In contrast, the Pharisees and religious leaders thought they could see. They thought they knew the way to God. They had no use for Jesus. They saw the light of the world, they saw his signs, and they rejected him. The irony is, is that if they would have admitted that they were blind, they would have had a chance to Verse 40, as I said, could be translated, we do not, uh, we're not blind also, are we? They, they assume they're not blind. But since they claim to see, their guilt remains. Andreas Kostenberger said, well, there is no cure for people who reject the only cure there is. There's no cure for people who reject the only cure there is. The only way that you can receive spiritual sight is by believing in the light of the world. There's no other way, and that is the Lord Jesus. He's the only one who has paid the penalty for our sins. He's the only one who can give us life. Well, for those of us who are followers of Christ, let this story remind us of the spiritual reality of this world. That there are so many people all around us every day who think they can see, but they are blind. There are others around us who know they are blind, spiritually speaking, but they don't know the light of the world. And friends, we don't know who is who until we boldly share about this man, Jesus. We don't know what God might do through us. He's changed our lives, and he wants us to go and be the light of the world to others. So if you this morning are here as we close, and you think, well, I'm really hesitant to share my faith. 
Let me encourage you to, maybe even this week, to practice your testimony using this format that the man with born blind used. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. In other words, don't try to summarize how, uh, all the finer points of theology. Try to summarize how Jesus has changed your life in small and big ways. You don't need all the answers. You do need the Lord's empowerment. You do need to look for opportunities, because they're all around us. If we ask God, he will show us where they are. Friends, Jesus is the light of the world. How you respond to that truth will impact you and will impact others for all eternity. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are humbled that you would send your son Jesus, the light of the world, to shine brightly, to give us spiritual sight. Lord, we do not deserve this. We were walking in darkness, then we saw the great light of Jesus. And those of us who have trusted you, we have, we have received your light. Lord, I pray that you would give us great boldness this week to shine this light towards others. Brothers here, Lord, I know that they're still wrestling with who Jesus is, why he came. They're wrestling with their own pride and doubt. They don't know how to reconcile some of the evil things in this world with the good and holy God. Lord, for those, I pray that you would shine your light upon them, that they might not resist you, they might come to you. We pray these things.